Welcome to the Signpost Inn podcast, a space at life's crossroads for a refreshing pause and a bit of reflection. My name is Brandon, and I'm really glad you're here. I invite you to join me and my friends, Matt and Peter, for a friendly back porch conversation about prayer, Christian spirituality, faithful theology, and much more. So pull up a chair, grab a drink, and get comfortable as we start today's show. And when we're done, don't forget to visit us at signpostend.org to find out more about all that our ministry offers. Hey everyone, welcome to The Back Porch. Before we dive into this fantastic interview with Steve May, I want to give you a bit of a warning. Because the topic of this episode is trauma, we end up talking about some very difficult and sensitive topics, and we don't shy away from them. Steve has been working with trauma for over 20 years, and as you can imagine, he's seen and heard a lot. So in the course of our conversation, he shares a few stories that some might find very difficult to hear. So listener discretion is advised, and this is probably not the episode to listen to in the car with small children around. At the same time, if you've ever experienced trauma or know someone who has, I think you're going to find that this interview is very informative and encouraging. So with that, enjoy the show. Well, welcome everybody to The Back Porch. My guest today is Steve May. He's a psychotherapist who works in St. Louis and has been working in psychotherapy for over 20 years. He has extensive experience in integrating spirituality with psychotherapy and has been doing a lot of work with trauma and loss and traumatic loss and is a friend of mine that as soon as I thought about these topics, I was like, the guy I got to talk to about this issue is Steve. So Steve, thank you for coming and (laughs) sitting down with me. Well, I'm honored to be considered a friend and to be even asked to be on the show. So I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I I do. I appreciate you. So thank you. What I, Honestly, Steve, the reason this whole idea has come into my head, I want to talk to several people who are much smarter than I on these topics. And especially, I think, your background with psychotherapy and just the extensive experience you have, because... I talk to people who have trauma, who have a lot of loss, who've been through a lot of horrible things. And mostly, you know, my, my role is I can be a friend, but so it's got me thinking like there's, there's probably much more to know about this and to, to learn about this kind of stuff. And a lot of people are interested in it. So can I start real basic? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) What is trauma? That word gets thrown around a ton. So what is it? How do you define it? Is that even the right place to start? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's a good thing to look at. And I mean, I do a lot of trauma work, but I'm almost, I'm almost sick of hearing the word in Mm. my industry because people use it for all kinds of stuff that I don't think it's necessarily applicable, but I'm going to give you a definition. Okay. An event in a subject's life defined by its intensity, by the subject's incapacity to respond adequately to it, and by the upheaval and long-lasting effects that it brings about in the physical or psychical organization. 
In economic terms, the trauma is characterized by an influx of excitation that is excessive by the standard of the subject's tolerance and capacity to master such excitation and work those out psychically. So it's something that's very, very overwhelming and it sticks with you. And it ends up influencing your behavior in ways that your will is really discharged from. Can you explain that, the, that your will is discharged? So when you work with somebody that's been traumatized, and let's say they're recollecting a memory, they will literally describe what their experience is feeling frozen. I mean, I've worked with hundreds, if not thousands of people with trauma. This is a common thing. When you try to get them to process about the experience, they feel psychologically completely frozen. Mm. They're experiencing a trauma and often they're experiencing a part of themselves that's almost persecuting them about that trauma and making them feel literally frozen like they can't move. And if anyone's had an experience of fear that's significant where you just felt like I'm frozen, that's trauma, but multiplied. So I think the way I've heard it, and tell me if this is sort of a good, simple definition. Trauma is pretty much anything that you can't handle. And that sort of, I guess, I guess the idea here is that it, you feel like you have no control and no, no response to. When you're experiencing it, yes. Okay. Or... You are automated acting out in behaviors for which in any other day and any other time you would not even consider doing. Hmm. So as an example, I, if you don't mind me going into this, I had a client, she was a, would go in an armored car service out in California. Three large men jumped her. She was a small Filipino lady who I adore from working with her. And they jumped her and got her gun and shot her and she was bleeding out on the ground, okay? She's a sweet gal. If you met her, you'd love her. You want to give her a hug, all that. She comes to St. Louis. She goes down to a casino with her family. Uh, the three gentlemen, two of them were African-American gentlemen who were fairly tall and large. She ended up shooting one of them during the incident, injuring another one and one got away. They eventually got prosecuted. So she's down at this uh, casino in St. Louis. She walks in, security guards there. He's a larger African-American male. And he starts to hassle her about having an ID, evidently not in a friendly, fun way. And mm -hmm. here she is under five foot five and he's six foot three. And all of a sudden she lunges at him and attacks him. This is not the way this lady has operated in her entire life, okay? That's not the way that she operates, but she was triggered in a way that all of a sudden she's acting out from that traumatic place and really she's discharged her will or her will has been subsumed by that traumatic experience. Mm. Mm. Okay. So you can be completely frozen or you might externalize that instead and then attack or abuse drugs or whatever it is to get over that feeling of being frozen. Yeah. Is there, is there like a level? Cause I think we use it a lot of times about, 
you know, smaller experiences. And I've heard this thing, right. Where it's, where we say kind of trauma. And I think it was in your definition. Trauma is sort of def defined by the individual, like something that I might experience might yes. be not traumatic to me, but it might be traumatic to somebody else. That's true. And so like, I I'm kind of thinking for people listening, it doesn't, you don't have to have been shot for you, for you to have gone through trauma. I mean, this could be something smaller in one's life. Are the effects, are the effects proportional? Does that make sense? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And so the bottom line is, is you're going to get in a situation that's similar to that situation. And you are going to act in a very defensive mode. And it is though in those moments you have no other choice. Mm. So whether it's a gunshot or, you know, I've worked with a lot of vets, you know, it, it's you're in that situation and it's going to cause you to act out from that traumatic place. And your, your ability to make decisions in that moment or reflect in that moment are highly limited. Mm. Does that, how does that, how does that affect, like, I mean, I mean, I guess I would assume that would make anybody think negatively of themselves, think negatively. So to turn this to, to turn this to like God and, and spirituality, like my experience and my question is, I noticed that people, myself included, when acting from those spaces, like I feel a lot of shame about that. And I often even project that onto God. I mean, does that make sense? Well, you have to, you have to do something with the overwhelming feeling. Mm. And we're, let's say as we're adults and we've had some sort of trauma, when we get within a similar context or a similar environment or something triggers us, we feel completely out of control. Mm. And when we feel completely out of control, we feel shame the majority of the time. Mm -hmm. Something is wrong with us. And you go back and you think about childhood and when you're a little, very small child and you begin to become aware, there isn't a separation necessarily that you can make categorically about this is a good thing or a bad thing. So you have a deficit, there's a neglect, there's something. And instead of necessarily blaming something outside of yourself because you're so self-referential, it gets directed back on you. Mm. There's something wrong with me. What's happening externally has something to do with what's going on in me internally. Mm -hmm. This is where somebody would, suffering abuse, a, a child, I guess because of their limitations and their age, assumes that the abuse is their fault. Or it perceives yes. that the abuse is caused because they're a bad kid. They're a horrible. That's right. Okay. And what I, what I hear you saying is that's, and I, I think I remember, I think you're the first person that introduced me to this topic in, in my own life, but, <laughs> but just like, I've always understood that I think as being, I think you said it self-referential. So it's like, I, something bad's happening to me when I'm five or six years old. And I just assume I have the power to make these things happen. It's like, I don't have the ability to see a larger picture that it's my dad that's got the problem. It's the something else out there. Right. And I tell people all the time, I find myself telling people, especially when you're little, 
you know, before you really start to individuate, before you start to make sense of this stuff, the caretakers are either gods or they're demons. Mm. And the way the caretaker handles that fact means a lot. Can you say more about, well, just say more about gods or demons. Well, I think that when a parent is abusive, I mean, you see your parents like the center, you're the center of the universe and they're the God in your universe. And that's right to do, right? It Like as a child. If that's normal development. That's the thing. It's normal development. Mm. And if it's allowed to develop under relatively good enough conditions, then they eventually become human beings. <laughs> the parents. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And it's a healthy thing when the kid finally decides that even though mom's told me this 14 times, I listen to a friend of mine and I do it. And parents are like, what? I told you that 14 times, but you didn't hear it. I mean, that's a healthy part of development as well. Mm. But when they get seared in your psyche as a demon or a god, either way, you're you are discharged of your ability to reflect and to be willful. Mm. And so I do abuse to you and you've got this worldview like I'm the center of the universe and you're my God in this universe. And then I really reach something, you know, through unfortunately molestation or physical abuse or significant neglect or even psychological neglect. I'm going to walk out of that because of my cognitive sort of limitations thinking there is clearly something wrong with me because I, I can't think beyond that perspective. So it gets seared in there at that age psychologically. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I'm just drawing a connection that that's, that explains a lot of my misunderstandings about the actual God. Right. Well, I just, what I find really fascinating is the, it's actually proper developmentally that at a certain time, in my worldview, I am the center of the universe and my mom and dad are my gods. And as I, as I grow, they become humans. They don't be like, I start to see them as actual humans and not gods. You got it. But there is a real God in this universe. And I can right. carry over this wrong understanding, which is like, I cause God's behavior. <laughs> I right. cause, no, you're you know, right. If my life, if I'm in pain, I'm actually causing, you know, I'm either so bad that God must punish me or I'm anyway, anyway, I just, I'm seeing yeah. that parallel that I kind of assume, I assume that the relationships are the same and I, yeah. So the real God is either good or a demon. Well, yeah, and I think that when you look at, and this is your area more than my area, so you can jump in and correct, please. But we start off, and that's what we do. We project our first images of caretaking or abuse on the more celestial powers. And then part of sanctification and our own individuation in the faith is getting rid of that and getting to know the fuller God. Yeah. You know, when I was in active ministry, I loved preaching about all the metaphors used for God. And out of the tradition that I came from, and you know this, power is really important. Mm. Really important. He's the king. He's the warrior. He's all these things, but he's never the midwife. Mm -hmm. 
And see, what I would say is you begin, now we're jumping on the spiritual, move toward wholeness, because I think that's at the foundation of everything, is moving toward that wholeness, that oneness, you know, that what Tilias or even Shalom, you know, disparate parts coming together in a whole, that's where God's bigger than the parent. Mm -hmm. And as we evolve in our understanding of God, then we reorganize that belief about them either being either being a god in the sense or a demon in a bad sense and we are all going through it and then we hit points in faith where we can't work our way around it because our own constructs and our own projections about the divine are obstructing us from actually working through something and that's all of us yeah well and i uh, the the obstruction when my perspective is I am fundamentally unlovable and deserve this horrible stuff. You got and it. So God is, you know, God is either a demon or he's doing the right thing by punishing me. There you go. Boy, that is a massively huge obstruction to actually talking to him. I'm not, I'm in, I am in no mood to go and have an, a vulnerable conversation with the person who, actually does have the power to you know throw me into hell so to speak right so all right so how do you <laughs> here's the listener asking okay well what do i do about that like okay i i starting to see some of this in myself what do i do how do you help somebody like that well let me let me start with practical stuff and then we'll move to more kind of spiritual underpinnings so one of the things that that I use is called EMDR, mm. which is a eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It's a technique that was used with veterans and still used for years and years. And basically what it does in a nutshell is it's going to help you to metabolize a traumatic experience because when you've had a traumatic experience, that experience is so overwhelming, you can't even put words into it mm. at all. You just can't. And like I said, they'll feel frozen and they'll say, I feel frozen. And you go to talk about the traumatic experience and they're going to have a panic attack or they could be a very talkative person. And all of a sudden they don't have any words for it. Mm -hmm. And so what EMDR does is it sort of opens up the trauma again in a very controlled situation and slowly allows the person to metabolize it. And the way I explain it is, if I cooked a whole turkey and tried to shove it down your throat, that wouldn't work. You'd die. What EMDR does is allows you to pick little pieces off the turkey and eat it on your own terms so that you're finally metabolizing the experience. Mm. That's mm. EMDR in a nutshell. Mm. The, the other part that I interweave into the EMDR, which I think is really important, is the expansion of the affective experience of the trauma. Because like I said, when you start, you don't have words or you feel frozen. And so people slowly are able through EMDR to open that up more. And then I will work with them on expanding their awareness of their affect, which has really been completely undermined as a result of the trauma. Can you explain what expanding their awareness of, of their affect means? So I had a guy the other day, he had been beaten up by a bunch of people because he was, 
I think, very vulnerable, and he was gay in high school, and he had just been beaten merciless, mercilessly by a group of people. And so we were doing the work, and he's just like, I, there's something occurring in me that's really, I, I feel angry, but I'm very uncomfortable with it. And so during the work with the EMDR, I had him start expressing what he really wanted to do. And it's kind of hard to explain if we're on the radio, but what he really wanted to do, the part of himself that wanted to protect himself and defend himself, and then put some words just to that very small, minuscule aspect of what he was experiencing in the moment. And so we did, you know, two sets, gave him some time really involved his body into it because this is something we haven't talked about, but trauma gets really seated in the body, okay? Mm. So when I'm doing this work with him, he's feeling frozen. He becomes less frozen. He becomes aware of this part of himself that wants to protect or defend himself. He starts symbolically doing that within the session. That opens up more affect. He goes mm. through a grieving process then, because he's got to grieve it and process the fact that he was attacked in such a brutal way. Mm. He's got to come out on the other side of it mm. once he's grieving it and he finds himself in a new place of control. Mm. So what brought him to me was not that thing. What brought him to me is he had in a real, and this unfortunately happened, he had a boss that physically grabbed him and tried to discipline him and then the older memory got activated i think the something in that story that strikes me is how many of us want want the answer to my original question what do i do about it to be like yeah. well, here's here's an insight think this thought and now you're fixed yeah i and know what, and what you're describing is like you You've walked through a whole a whole bunch of stuff that takes time and the yes sir and takes gosh I, I, courage yeah courage yeah on the part of my client incredible courage that I often stand in awe of Brandon yeah that's what I was just thinking like that's terrifying to because basically I'm just thinking I'm just realizing that what you're asking that man to do is in a certain way, in a controlled way, in an environment with support, but yeah. still re-engage and relive that experience. Yeah. And I don't, oh, I just wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> well, in the way that it's set up, and some of this is paradoxical, but I think most of my clients get this, is I'll say, okay, this is, I can't tell you how to do this. I am not your personal athletic trainer. I am not going to push you to go farther than you can go. And we have certain scales that I teach them about that they report on. If it gets to a certain level, we make an agreement to stop, do some sort of calming or regulating technique, and then either go back to it or not. So the frame is set up that I really emphasize that I can't push them and they can't push themselves which in and of itself allows them to find their own volition, I think, within the context of each of the interventions that go on within that treatment. Because I am letting them have complete free will, and I'll even look at them, and I'll look at them, and you know me, I, I can be fairly, I guess people say if I don't smile, I look intimidating. 
and I can be fairly intimidating. And I, and I beg them and I say, please do not, I cannot push you. Do not allow me to push you. If you feel you're being pushed, you must stop me because this is contraindicated to the treatment. Because if I'm pushing you, then I'm just piling on the trauma. Yeah. And so yeah. then the frame is set up from there to start to not only work with the trauma, but what's happening in the background is their own sense of agency with the backdrop of the trauma is ever getting stronger. Hello, Backporchers. I hope you're enjoying the show. Did you know that we have several free events coming up in 2023? All of them are designed to take you deeper in your relationship with God. First up, we have two virtual workshops on contemplative prayer. First, Saturday, February 11th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Mountain Time, and another one on Saturday, April 15th, also from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Mountain Time. Join me as I help you understand and practice contemplative prayer. You can ask your questions and connect with other listeners of our podcast as well. Next, we have a Stations of the Cross tour on Saturday, April 1st, where Leave, my wife and co-founder of Signpost Inn, will help you start the Lenten season by contemplating the gorgeous Stations of the Cross statues in San Luis, Colorado. Finally, at least for now, we'll be hosting a one-day retreat for pastors and their spouses at our beautiful mountain lodge in Westcliff, Colorado on July 11th. There's no agenda. It's just time for pastors and their spouses to get away, get a delicious free lunch, and spend time however they choose in the mountains. And did I mention that all of these are free? Check them all out by visiting signpostin.org slash events. Again, that's signpostin.org slash events. And thank you to all our generous donors who make these free events possible. And now, back to the show. This may be wildly off topic or off on a tangent, but is is one of the key problem, like one of the things that's most difficult or horrific about trauma is the lack of like that that I, that I get removed, my ability to have any control gets removed, my agency gets yes. removed, and that's where the shame is tied. Why is the shame tied to that? Like I'm not following because... that. Because if I, I'm not able, able to exercise my sense of self, then what is my worth? I can't control myself. Control is central to the way that we see ourselves. Hmm. I was just thinking of somebody else. When someone else takes away, away, takes complete control of me in a sense, then the message that is communicated to me is that you are worth. I am worthless. I am worthless. That is exactly right. Hmm. So I, I had a gal one time and she was a character and you're, I know your listeners are from all over, but she was like a typical, you know, post 45 kind of gal in the South side taverns in St. Louis. She was raspy and, and a character and, you know, everyone loved her. Her mom was completely abusive with her. She came in because she had been to a Toys R Us and saw a woman starting to beat and humiliate a child, and she jumped that woman, didn't know mm. who she was. Mm. So she came to me, and we started to do some work, and this happens with anybody that has traumas. They have a tremendous amount of shame. 
I mean, go back to our childhood interpretation. It's not only that I can't do this, but because I can't do this and because in my mind, I should be able to do this almost at a magical level. I have none of it. So who am I? But anyway, yeah. I, I sit down with her and I said, well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about your mom. And we started to talk about her mom in a really bad, bad situation. And here's this gal that's attacking people at, at Toys R Us who with a couple beers in her, I would put her against just about anybody. And we start to talk about her mom and her eyes drop and are completely fixed on the ground. And she cannot look up at me, can't do it. And so I asked her, can you please try to look at me? And I want you to tell a portion of the story that you just told me. And please look in my eyes and please notice my reaction. Because I can tell you from my standpoint, she is overwhelmed with shame of worthlessness. Mm. In that moment, because we're stepping into that traumatic memory. And she did. She looked up. She looks in my eyes. She grieves. I'm not responding if she's a horrible person. I'm responding if she's courageous. Yeah. Very transformational. To make a turn then. It, it kind of strikes me that the story you just told, here's a woman yeah. struggling with deep shame. And oh, yeah. she, she's given the space to, to tell a portion of that story and see reflected in your eyes that you think she's courageous. It strikes me that that is one of the experiences. Like that's an image of God that I have in my life now, that that's how he looks at me. And I yes. that's... I just think, I think that's so different than the, you know, I, this is, I don't mean to be critical, but there's like, that's so different than the kind of standard Sunday school God. Yes. <laughs> you know, that, that how many of us imagine, and, and I use imagine there meaning image, see images of God in our mind, that he's proud of us, that he, that, that, you know, it's a what's I don't remember exact reference point or a biblical reference, but when Jesus marvels at the centurion, you know, that's that's a fancy word for he he thinks highly of this guy. He's really courageous. Like Jesus is going, Whoa, you're really courageous. That's great. Never thought about that. But to have that experience, to have that experience of God, like to have God say, Look at me, so you can see that I think you're amazing. For, right. for for telling this story, for sharing right. with me. Gosh. I'm in an I'm in awe of your courage. I'm in because I feel it when I'm in the room, and now we're in a little feeling flaky stuff. But <laughs> when somebody's eyes, right? So that's my whole business, and that's the way I talk about it. But her eyes being riveted in the ground, Brandon. She cannot move her eyes up. Yeah. She cannot do it. And I'm nudging her a little, but not a lot. And I've done this with a lot of clients that have had trauma. It's really, really important because they are all of a sudden seeing themselves in relation to me and seeing that they're not worthless and horrible, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which they're not. Right. I mean, my, my, my response is not like some supernatural thing. 
I think that if a traumatic person could look up and talk to people that are honestly going to listen to their story, they'd see the same thing in their face, but they can't Mm -hmm. because the experiences cause them to rivet their sense of self and their own shame and worthlessness Mm -hmm. because of their incapacity to have any power. Powerlessness means I'm a piece of poop Mm -hmm. in the human sense. I feel like this is, I have this, I have a weird resistance in me to turn this question this way. But I don't, and I don't know why, but because in the context of this conversation, then I clearly see God working with us to restore our agency, to restore our power. Like he gives back to us. Yeah. A kind of control. And I don't know why that sounds like I shouldn't say that, but I, I, in this context, this makes perfect sense. God, right? you know, God isn't going to, somebody who's been through that kind of an experience and been, their their sense of self has been shattered because they, ha, they have no ability to change anything. And they, they have been stolen from themselves and told that they're worthless because somebody took, they have no input, so they must be worthless. Like God's response is to turn around and give input. Like what's your input? He asks for input. He asks for you to be a part of this. He asks, he gives you control. And I know that that's, you know what it makes me think of, Steve? It actually makes me think of the way Jesus constantly talks to people. It's always an invitation. It's, you know, he's always like, will will you follow me? You know, and if they don't, he doesn't, you know, he's like, all right, (laughs) but, but boy, there's a lot of. Let let me give you a weird paradox that I'm thinking about as we're talking about. So recently had a a client whose son committed suicide Mm -hmm. and one of her friends had been my client forever in a horrible situation. And she came to me and she said, you know, after all these years, there's one thing you said to me that really is stuck and it has caused me to draw closer to God despite the experience that I had that moved me away from God. And that was that if I'm mad at God, I need to tell him in great detail. And that's what I run into with a lot of clients that are believers is they're not able to do that because they're so, feel so shameful. And I'm going to be a little bit graphic here, but I, you know, I, especially this lady, I said, if you feel like telling God to F off, do it and Mm -hmm. feel it Mm -hmm. and feel it completely. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening ultimately for most people that I work with is when they do that, they develop a completely new understanding of grace And that anger with God, though it becomes something that they manage, it opens them up in a completely different way to how profound God's grace is. Because he knew our frame when we were dust. He knew us before the foundation of the world. Yeah. We can look at a parent that has a child that's acting really badly and we don't feel like the parent is responding. But sometimes it's because the parent knew them when they were knitted in their womb. And they know they're going to go through this little cycle that's just for now. And that cycle will eventually evolve into hopefully something else, if you're following what I'm saying. Yeah, it it strikes me that I can imagine someone who's 
got who gets angry at an abusive parent or an abusive authority and the abusive authority responds by completely removing your agency and self and horrible stuff which is basically saying every feeling you have every thought you have every action you want to take is worthless that's right god this is you know this is not what you just described being angry at god fully feeling it throwing it all at him this is not a, in my mind, trick of the trade. This is an actual relationship. How does, Absolutely. How does the actual God respond? Well, he actually cares. So when you have an emotion, he cares about that emotion. He, when you have feelings, he cares about it. He likes you. And they're, you're exa- so there's like, it's like the complete opposite of the abusive parent or the abusive authority. Here's a God who says, you need to feel this. Yeah. And I get why you're feeling it. Yeah. I get it. I get why you're feeling it because you've been thrown in this temporospatial world. You know, like Ecclesiastes sees he put eternity in our heart, but we can't really figure it out. I get it. So you're going to say that. So why would I invalidate you and your expressions from your perspective? Well, well, even more, you are in this horrible place. You need at least one place where it's okay to feel the way you should, the way you actually feel about this. You got it. And, you got it. you know, here's, this gives me a whole new way of thinking about the, that Jesus suffers along with us. Okay, great. He suffered on the cross, whatever. That sort of is sort still abstract to me. Like, okay, some, right. Have, but I'm hearing this as being actually here and now. This yes. is like, no, no, I'm a, I am going to, I get it. Everything else is, gone to hell in a handbasket god says to me i will be an active current place where your need to express how horrible you feel and how angry you are and what you want to do about it and what all this stuff i will be a place where that's okay you actually have a space with me to do that and that's a very different person than the guy who says you say one thing bad or one thing wrong and i hurt you very much so (laughs) And just everything you're saying about, you know, fine, I'll take everything away from you. Now you got nothing. Now you're worthless. It's like God is the best containing parent. He knows this is what you're going to do. He's not freaking out. It's no threat to his ego. He created you because he loves you. Yeah. (laughs) He knows you're going to go in these little diversions and cul-de-sacs spiritually and psychologically. And he says, let it out. Because, you know, grace abounds even more. Yeah, right. You're going to learn something about me and about our relationship if you really let your anger out that you've mm-hmm. never experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. And I can't I can't say as a human thrown in a temporospatial world, that happens all the time. And when I approach it with clients, I don't tell them the ending. Because they have to come to it on the, in their own experiential experience of that, that relationship. I have a lady that was, she's a solid believer, but a solid believer for years. And she was one that I spoke to you about before, discovered her daughter and rigor up in her room because of a drug overdose. And her daughter had kids living there. And then the daughter's kids came in the room while the grandma was in the room, freaking out and saw their mom and rigor. And she said to me, I have been a believer as long as I can remember. 
She said, but I don't know if I believe anymore. I don't know if I believe anymore. Mm-hmm. exactly the questions of why would he do this to me? I mean, okay, I've done some stupid stuff and I deserve lots of consequences, but my God, I can't even begin to put words to the loss I'm experiencing. And I said, tell him that and tell mm-hmm. him you're pissed about it. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I don't know if I'll believe after that. I said, he's big enough to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, <laughs> I don't want any, I don't want to anybody listening to feel shame or something from this. Uh, so I'm going to speak from my own personal experience. When I have asked the question, "Why did God let this happen to me?" and I've been through some crazy crap. My my perspective on it now is, in the moment, I wanted some sort of answer. I wanted you to give me a sentence that explained yeah. it, and I. And I think I wanted that answer as an explanation because it actually kept me from experiencing the thing I really wanted. You got which it. Was, which was, <laughs> I actually wanted him to just kind of hug me. I actually wanted him to be like, that's all right. Right. And I wanted the experience of the personal God who was like, I, I may not even, I still want the answer. Like I still want the rational answer. Right. But I want the I want the comfort and the person first. Right. I can only say that now though. Like I couldn't say that when I was when I Absolutely. was really when I was really asking that question, I was just really angry. Right. And that's a reality. And that needs to be validated. Mm-hmm. I can tell you from my own personal experience, I've been at that point back in the years of being able and I literally remember what I said. I said, why don't you just let me go? just let me go i know you got a purpose but i really don't want to play this purpose anymore i'm just done Mm -hmm. let me go and at that moment that's the way i felt Mm -hmm. i believe he was big enough to hear that Mm -hmm. was it fun trying to move out of that place no did it happen immediately absolutely not but now that i'm in some place where i see some grand celestial symphony i'm gonna negate that experience no absolutely not because you know what my flesh is tricky (laughs) and who knows that of five years from now i don't go through the same process and say the same thing again will it be any less real absolutely not Mm -hmm. yeah so i have to ask some questions that were asked by uh i kind of put it out there what 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 should i be asking if i were going to talk about this and so this is going to take us another direction for a few minutes, but, and I don't know if I sent these to you or not. So <laughs> buckle up here. They come Steve. One of the questions, it comes from, I think from outside of trauma, someone watching yeah. someone stuck in a traumatic or abusive relationship. And so the question is like, well, the question is there are many people stuck in a trauma bond. That's the, this listener's language for it. They don't even, okay. they don't even know it. They don't even have any idea. So how can we help them see clearly? How can we help? How can we support them as they start to see clearly? So I, the question is, here's, I know I have a friend, a daughter of somebody who's stuck in a traumatic or abusive relationship. How do I help them see that and start to move out of it? Well, I think one thing is, and this is going to sound strange, but not really based on where the conversation is sort of evolved into 
is validating their experience and not only the parts that they want to hear you say in an abusive relationship, just stick with it. It'll turn out all right. But validate the fact that what they're experiencing, not by your own overlay, but by what they're experiencing is a lot of despair in the same way. I mean, you highlight and, and emphasize that, yeah, this you're living with this person. It's just like year after year. And I just noticed that you just feel like you're losing more and more of yourself. And I hate that for you. See, mm-hmm. that's very different than you need to pack your bags and get out. Mm-hmm. Now, that's kind of that's kind of a high level response. Mm-hmm. But I think validating the whole of their experience is important so that they're able to incorporate that because let's take somebody in an abusive relationship. What they've done is they've minimized and thrown far away from them all, all the bad effects of that relationship because they feel if they leave that relationship, they'll be worthless. I think just the general idea of saying, and this goes along with the way that we're sort of conceptualizing God, is being able to say, yep, that's for real. But boy, I want this for you. This is really what I want for you. Mm -hmm. I wish I could give it to you, but I know that I can't. That's the best you can do. Now, as people like to give me trouble, those are some Jedi mind tricks. But in the spirit of it, that's what God does. I think of Gideon all the time and throwing the fleece on the threshing floor. Mm. Okay, this is God. He's huge. He's powerful. Why even waste a breath on doing this thing with a fleece on the threat? It seems so below him, beneath him, to be willing to be able to do that. But that's exactly, at least in my understanding, who God is. So I hope I didn't get too far out there and gave you some practical sense of what I'm talking about. No, I think so. I'm just thinking about it. Okay. For the listener who asked that question, I I, I hurt. <laughs> I hurt for the reality that the that's the best you can do, but I, yeah, but I also, I also recognize that sometimes the best you can do is just the best you can do. I mean, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's yeah. I mean, we can't. Here's the thing: God is a gentleman. Yeah, He doesn't force Himself on anyone. We have to respect the space where the will should be in order to show them that they have the ability to step into that. Because when they're talking from us from the standpoint of being abused in an abusive relationship, they don't see that will. They don't see that ability to choose. Mm-hmm. That doesn't exist. So another question comes from, I think, the other side. And this, this question really was fascinating to me. It's the why question from, from the offender. And I think this is probably from the side of somebody who has hurt others and is now, I suppose, I would, I would imagine has to be repentant in some sense, but mm-hmm. why did I do this? Why did God make me hurt people this way is the question that's asked. And, you know, honestly, I hadn't, I, I, I had thought about this question from the side of offender, you know, but, but I don't think we often do allow for yeah. this to be, something that the person doing the abuse and offenses also got their stuff. So anyway, I'm going to throw that one at you just as it was given to me. Why from the offender? Why did I do this? Why did God make me like this or do this? Well, I think that sounds evasive. It's a very complex answer. And I definitely 
would not pretend to know it conclusively, but I would say it comes out of the own, the, the person's own trauma. So my offender that I think I spoke to you about before we got on, the one that had was involved in almost like a federal level racial sort of hate crimes. Once we dug into his past and his history, it's pretty clear why he did what he did. In fact, it becomes very clear. It comes out of his own trauma. And we're all humans, and I think we all have the capacity to do just about anything. Yeah. Now, that's kind of a thing that makes people uncomfortable. But I think we're human, and we all have the capacity to do just about anything. Yeah. None of us is immune from doing evil. And depending upon the amount of deficits that we have in ourselves and our own trauma and the things where our will gets discharged to act on someone else, you know? This brings up the question for me. This is more of a philosophical question, ethical question of like, at what point do I have responsibility for my behavior? And I'm wondering now if there's like a, too much of a con or too much of a, a granular view on this usually. So did I have direct willpower control over this individual behavior may not be the correct, always the correct question. Right. But the question of responsibility is much more of a, what have I done with my trauma? What, what, how have I healed right. with it and moved forward with it? That's right. Which allows some more complex answer to Am I responsible for this behavior? Well, yes, but there's, but I have space to be also able to say it's more complex than just, I chose it. I also have this other stuff, which is a much more, in my experience, healthy way of dealing with the, the sins that I, you know, the behavior, the, the sinful behavior that I have engaged in, it's much healthier when I've dealt with it in terms of those individual particular behaviors. I may be totally out of control and I can even look at it right. and say, not my fault that I have it, that I haven't dealt with it, that it's there. It is my fault. And it's, you know, and so I am ultimately responsible for that behavior, but right. there's a space for a more complex answer to, and that helps me. Well, I think let's talk about the reality of legal. So I had a client and he was on the spectrum and he was busted for child pornography, mm. being part of a child pornography ring. And try as we may. And I, when I say this, I, I mean this. Try as we may to explain to him that he had done something that was illegal predominantly for the purposes that we were all engaging, he could not understand it. And so he had actually met up with a young man also from another state that was a prostitute, but he was underage. And we would sit down with him and say, do you understand that the issue is, is that the person is under 18? And he would immediately in his mind flip it and say, you're against me because I'm gay. Now, his mom sat there. I sat there. If you can imagine this, the prosecutor tried. The judge pulled him to the sidebar. Everyone involved in the entire process of adjudication tried to get to see if he could understand that being gay and him doing what he did was two different things and he couldn't. 
I think we have a moral and social responsibility to make sure that he does not freely engage in our society. If you met the guy apart from that, very sweet, very nice, very tender. He did the actions. There's something wrong in his thinking that's really wrong, where he transfers the action that is illegal over to something that he thinks is legal. And then he thinks that we're all persecuting him for that. But we have a responsibility that he just can't be run around out in society. It's still wrong. Is he ever going to have insight? I don't think he will. And I don't think he'll leave where he's at. Doesn't negate the fact that we can't have mercy for him mm-hmm. in some spiritual sense and have mercy for him. I mean, look, the whole court was trying to get him just to be aware of it. I'm telling you, literally, the judge got off the bench, came down, talked to him directly to say, now, look, listen to me. And all he did was get madder and madder at the judge. Hmm. Now we sit back here and we go, my God, that kid is impaired. That doesn't suspend him from his actions, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Doesn't suspend him from the consequences. God may have mercy on his soul. He may die and he may go to be with the Lord because he considers himself a believer. And in this world may still think that he w- that something was done wrong to him. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean he does not not suffer the consequences. Right. I hope that gives you some. No, that's really helpful. Yeah. Because think about the Old Testament. The main mitig- mitigating thing is always mercy. Even r- rabbinical arguments. You got one school that says, oh, the wife burnt the bread, get rid of her. And then you got the other group that says, no, you, she can burn the bread all day long. It's adultery. Mercy is always mitigating. But it doesn't mean you get to avoid the consequences. As we, uh, I guess, as we kind of wrap up, this question came from somebody who I think has apparently struggled with some kind of trauma and been hurt by people who, have tried to give them advice and given them in their words, bad advice. (laughs) The question is simply, what do you do about that? What's what advice do you have for this person who has reached out and received pretty, pretty bad advice back, you know, people who are not validating of her or his experience. Right. I, I, first of all, I think you have to use a discretion about who you share it with and who you don't. Mm. Having said that, I think that it, even if you're surrounded by a bunch of people identify themselves as believers, you still have to use, unfortunately, that same discretion. Mm-hmm. And so you really have to find somebody to work with individually or be put in a group where people are seriously taking a look at the trauma and not necessarily share it with everyone. Yeah. For your own safety, not for their sake, the heck with them, for your own safety. You have to be able to do that. Because look, look what you're looking for. You're looking for some, I mean, in in a way, it's like the definition of sin in Hebrew and Greek. You're missing the mark. You're looking for grace. You're looking for validation, but you're missing the mark. You're going to people who cannot really provide that. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. You're trying. You want it. You want something good. And that happens with trauma all the time. There's something you want out of the interaction, but it's the wrong people that you're choosing. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Is there is there a question I should have asked? Is there a question I should be thinking about? Well, I I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's a question that you should ask, but I mean, I think it I think what's really important is people look into their lives and see things where they do repetitive things that they kind of feel like, boy, that's not really me. And then start to ask the questions of where does where does that come from? And why am I repeating it? Why why am I repeating it and what are the effects of it? Mm-hmm. And is it rooted in shame? Am I moving toward wholeness or disintegration? And I think it's just a good thing for us to reflect on because I think there's a lot of stuff that we do individually. And then unfortunately we get into a collective situation where there may have been some generally shared trauma and then it takes on more power and then we lose our will in the process. Hmm. And so I, I don't know if that's the thing you should have asked. I don't know if you would have asked that, but I think what all this helps us to do is, consider everything that we've talked about yeah talked about god we've talked about grace we've talked about reorganizing your understanding of god reorganizing your sense of self that you can have an experience that may make you feel and you won't tell anybody or maybe you tell the wrong people that you feel completely worthless and that we're that you're not the only one experiencing it. There's a lot of people experiencing it, but they have to be secretive because you often can't confide in people around you because they have their own psychic limitations that don't allow them to validate you or to accept you or whatever it is. Sorry, I'm just kind of summarizing in my own weird way. So I hope that, I hope that answers the question. Oh yeah, no, that's it's it's often I often find that that's a handy way to get get the guests to summarize what they think is most important oh, from this you got me you tricked me you tricked me okay that's all right that's yeah, fine but i i appreciate that that listeners might find this as an opportunity to reflect and if there's if there's that feeling if there's that repetitive if a behavior that i can't explain that i feel a lot of shame about that might be a good thing to seek help for seek a safe help for Steve, thank you. Thank you for this conversation. This has been super fun. You're welcome. Thank you. I honestly I enjoy it just because it's this is a back porch conversation. I, I ask my questions and if other people benefit from it, then great. But I've benefited from it. This has been very eye-opening in oh, some good. ways for me. So thank you. Listeners, thanks for tagging along. And uh I think this has been a pretty heavy episode in a lot of ways. I hope you I, I don't want to say I hope you've enjoyed it. But I hope you find it, I hope you find it edifying in some way. So may the grace of Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Signpost In, a nonprofit Christian ministry dedicated to helping people connect with God and find direction. We offer spiritual direction, retreats, and lots of other resources like this podcast. Please visit us at signpostin.org to learn more. We especially want to thank our generous donors who support our work and keep this podcast going. 
If you've benefited from something you've heard on this show, please consider supporting us by making a tax-deductible gift at signpostin.org donate. That's signpostin.org donate. And thank you.